Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Monday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Well, we left off last time with a two-part story on the birth of Jesus, just in time for Christmas. I'd like to pick up today where we left off. Jesus was about 30 years old and ready to launch his public ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us the story of Jesus. They draw on common sources. They're the synoptic gospels, sin as in synonym, optic as in eye, seen with the same eye. They're very closely related, but they're three different takes on the same story. John, however, writes his gospel much later. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written sometime in the 60s, maybe the early 70s, but John writes his gospel in the late 80s, maybe even the early 90s. John was the beloved disciple. John was the brother of James, who were partners in a fishing business with their father Zebedee and with Peter and Andrew. John was the closest of all to Jesus himself, and John was in fact Jesus' cousin. So John is the last living apostle. John knows that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are circulating in the Christian community, so he's going to tell us not the story yet again, but what the story meant. And that's where I want to start with today's podcast, at the beginning of the Gospel according to John. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. Now he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom 
I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Blessing on top of blessing. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. That's the prologue to John's Gospel. And if I pull out the most important phrases, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. Did you get that? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. John came to that conclusion after many years of thinking about all the events that had taken place. John writes an epistle to the church sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, 1 John. And in 1 John he begins, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have gazed upon and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. I just love that opening verse. That which was from the beginning, Christ, which we have heard, John heard his voice. He heard him speak. He knew what his voice sounded like. Did Jesus have a uh, a deep bass voice? Did he have more of a tenor voice? What does laugh sound like? John knew. John heard him when people were seated on the Mount of Beatitudes, 5,000 people, and Jesus preached to them, and they could all hear him. He must have had quite a voice. But honestly, that Mount of Beatitudes is a natural amphitheater with acoustics like the Disney Center in Los Angeles. I've stood at the bottom of that hill with a group seated on the hill and spoken a normal voice and everyone could hear me just fine. But what did Jesus' voice sound like? John knew and he pondered that all those years. You know, I've found over my life with the death of my mother and my father and my grandmother, the death of my wife in 2013, that the very, the very first memory that goes away, that fades, is the sound of a person's voice. But John clung to the voice of Christ. He could hear him speak, even all those years later. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. John saw him. 
John knew what he looked like. You know, we have countless paintings and images of, of Jesus, all invented, all from an artist's imagination. But what did he really look like? How tall was he? Was he thin? Was he muscular? Was he heavy? What did his eyes look like? When Jesus gazed into another's eyes, what did they look like? John knew that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have gazed upon. Think of that. John and the others traveling with Jesus during the public ministry, three years on the road, teaching and preaching all throughout Galilee, 240 towns in, in Galilee, Josephus tells us. And I'll bet Jesus went to most of them. And at night, seated around the campfire after cooking some dinner, after talking, telling stories, asking questions, Jesus said, oh boy, it's getting late. We had a big day today. I think I'm ready to turn in. So he'd wrap up in a blanket, fall asleep. And John, who is much younger than Jesus, if we think of Jesus as 30 years old, I think of John as being perhaps 17, maybe 16, almost like a little brother to Jesus. John would sit there as the campfire faded and turned to embers. And he would gaze upon Jesus. Perhaps getting up, walking quietly toward him, pulling the blanket up around him to make him warm. That which we have gazed upon. And our hands have touched. John touched him. Imagine reaching out, putting your hand around Jesus' shoulder, giving him a hug, laughing together, poking fun at each other like big brothers and little brothers do. That which our hands have touched. We so often think of Jesus touching us, metaphorically, I suppose, touching our hearts, but what would it be like to reach out and touch him? John knew. It's a very intimate scene in the opening of First John. And with that opening, in the prologue to the Gospel according to John and here in the opening of First John, Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew what his mission was to be. But when did he know it? And how much did he know? And that's always been two questions that, that I ponder. When we read in the opening of the Gospel according to John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. In the Lord Jesus Christ, God Almighty, God, creator of the universe, 
stepped into our world and fleshed and walked among us. Jesus was born like any other little boy was born. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was dedicated on the 40th day. He grew up in Nazareth learning to ride his bike and play with the kids and learning how to read and write. We've explored that in our story of the birth of Christ. But how much did he know about who he was? What was his self-realization? When he's about to begin his public ministry, what was it he knew? What was it he questioned? He could not be fully human without having doubt, without having anxiety, without having questions. So let me turn over to the Gospel according to Mark, to a very brief scene of Jesus' baptism. In the Gospel according to Mark, we read in chapter 1, beginning at verse 9, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Now, the baptismal site is not just south of the Sea of Galilee. If you've been to Israel and you were baptized in the Jordan River, chances are it was on the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. There's a baptismal site there, nicely prepared by the Israeli government for Christian tourists to be baptized in the Jordan River. But that's not where Jesus was baptized. He was baptized way south, right as the Jordan River is about to empty into the Dead Sea, right opposite Jericho. Jericho is on the west side of the Jordan River. Bethany, on the other side, is just across the river. And we think of the Jordan River, the mighty Jordan. It's more like a creek. I've been to the Jordan many times opposite Jericho. And you look on the other bank of the river, and my, it's not more than 50 yards away. Not even that. You can take a stone and throw it over into Jordan. But that's where he was baptized, because all the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for Passover Pentecost Tabernacles, who didn't come by sea and disembark at Caesarea Maritima and make their way up to Jerusalem, all those who were coming from the north by land would walk parallel to the Sea of Galilee on the west side, down to Beit Shan or Sethopolis, cross the Jordan River at Beit Shan or Sethopolis, and parallel the Jordan River on the east side of the river all the way down to Bethany on the other side, and then cross the Jordan River back over for the Jordan right there at Jericho, and then up the old Roman road, 17.3 miles from 900 feet below sea level to 2,500 feet above, the last leg of a journey, a three-day journey from Galilee. And that's where Jesus went. And why was John baptizing there? Because at the beginning of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, three pilgrimage festivals, the normal population of Jerusalem was about 100,000, but at the festivals, you had upwards of a million people. So that fording spot opposite Jordan, uh, opposite Jericho, that fording spot was like the, here in California, the five and the 405 coming together in Orange County at rush hour. 
That's where all the traffic was. John was not out in the middle of nowhere baptizing. He was right there in the thick of the action. So Jesus went there to be baptized by John. It initiates his public ministry. And in Mark, and I chose Mark for a reason, because of the verb tenses. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, as he's coming up, now imagine John dipping Jesus backward in the Jordan and bringing him up. Now the camera goes into slow motion and we see the, the drops of water coming off his hair and off his shoulders and hands. And as he's coming up out of the water, at the very same moment, he saw heaven being torn open. It's a violent verb, schizo, like schizophrenic, torn in half. And the Holy Spirit descending not on him, but into him like a dove. And at the very same moment, a voice from heaven said, you are my son whom I love, with you, I am well pleased. All happening simultaneously. A stunning picture. The heavens being ripped open. The Holy Spirit descent into him like a dove. Flash of light. Right down to his very core. And the voice of God saying, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. What a scene. And in Mark, it's so brief, but it is just dynamite. And then we read, at once, immediately, the Spirit drove him into the desert, forcibly pushed him into the desert. That area around Jericho, both on the east and west side, when we go up the old Roman road from Jericho, that is some really rugged territory, really rugged territory. It's not desert as in the Negev desert. It's high rocks, a little scrub grass, hot. Oh my gosh, at Passover, springtime, at Jericho, it's gotta be 100 degrees. And that's where he was taken by the Holy Spirit into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. To be tempted by Satan. Now think about that. Why would God the Father dispatch the Holy Spirit to push Jesus into the wilderness, into that rugged area for 40 days and 40 nights? If we turn over to the gospel according to Luke, we get an indication. In Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 23, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. And then we have a genealogy, this time going from Adam to Jesus, just the opposite of Matthew's genealogy, which goes from Matthew, uh, from uh, Abraham to Jesus. But Luke does it backward. He ends with Adam. I would argue that in Matthew, we have Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, 
establishing Jesus' claim to the Davidic throne. In Luke, we have Jesus' genealogy through Mary, establishing the blood connection to David. In any case, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. I'll bet you'd be hungry too if you didn't eat or drink for 40 days. Now, what's the point of the temptation? We have three examples of the temptation here, and I'll read them to you momentarily. But there weren't three temptations. It was continual temptation. These are simply three examples of what the temptations were. He's there alone, cut off from everyone else, dueling with Satan. Now, Satan, Satan, the fallen angel, Lucifer, the most glorious of all the angels, led a third of the angels of heaven in a war against God the Father and were cast out of heaven. And Satan vowed revenge. And now the door has opened. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, no, I'm not saying you are, but let's say hypothetically, if you're the son of God. Tell this stone to become bread. Now, I noted this is a pretty rugged territory. And if you travel from Jericho up to Jerusalem on that old road, there's nothing but stones. You want to turn the stones into bread? You can feed the whole world. Tell this stone to become bread. You're hungry. I know you are. But Jesus answered, it is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil then led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Hey, turn the stones to bread, you can feed the world. Worship me, all the power and wealth of the world will be at your feet. But Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In both cases, the bread and the kingdoms, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, and then Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. The devil then led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, the point of trumpeting. If you have been to Jerusalem and you've seen the temple platform where the temple sat, today the Dome of the Rock, third holiest site in Islam, sits there. But if you stand at the southern end, the southern steps, where the entrance to the temple was, on the left corner of the platform, that would be the southwest corner, at the very tippy top was the place of trumpeting. That is, the shofar would be blown from that place. 
and indeed the very stone that marks the place of trumpeting fell in AD 70 when the temple burned, crashed to the pavement, and was found there in the 1990s. It's in the Israel Museum today. There's a replica of it on the site itself. The highest point of the temple, highest point from top of the wall to the bottom street level. The devil led him there, not physically, but in a phantasmagorical sense. And he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Just leap right off. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered. That's a quote, by the way, from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And Jesus answered. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Notice he refers to himself as the Lord your God. And he quotes again Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Now, when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until a more opportune time. So that 40 days in the wilderness, 40 days of, of being tempted, 40 days of questioning, of doubting, of wrestling, struggling with the job he was to do. I mentioned earlier, how much did Jesus know about his own self-identity and when did he know it? He's about to embark on his public ministry. But that 40 days in the wilderness, Satan went after him. Satan planted doubt. Satan said, if you are the son of God. Now, I'm not saying you are, but hypothetically, if. You know, maybe you're just deluding yourself here. Maybe, maybe you're, you're, you're not right here. Those were the temptations. 40 days continuously. But at the end, Jesus prevailed. So what will happen next? Well, we'll have to wait until Wednesday to find out. I leave you on a cliffhanger, gang. Hey, thank you for being with me. I hope you had a very blessed Christmas and, uh, and look forward to a happy new year here coming up this week. And I'll be right back with you on Wednesday. And we'll continue our story of Jesus himself. Thank you for being here. Bye-bye now. <laughs>